What is up, guys? This is the Wise and Well podcast, and I am your host, Herman Lin. My mission is to help make fitness and nutrition way more simple and realistic for you so that you can improve both your physical and mental health. Each week, I interview a guest to bring you actionable insights that you can apply every day to build the healthiest and most fulfilling life. Let's go. What is up, everybody? Today, we have Sam Forger, who is a nutrition coach that's been helping frustrated dieters for over 10 years now. This is one of the most transparent and nuanced conversations I've probably had on this show so far, because Sam is a firm believer that there is no benefit from sugarcoating the things his clients need to hear. And I appreciate that perspective a lot, because there is nothing more powerful than radical honesty without judgment attached to it. We start the episode with Sam talking about why he has stopped censoring himself online lately. We talk about why real change requires radical honesty with yourself, how to identify your own opportunities without judging yourself. We talk about how to stop living in the constant on and off cycle of yo-yo dieting. And we finish off by talking about the concept of food freedom, if it's real, and how to actually achieve it. This is a jam-packed episode from start to finish, so let's do it. Sam Forge, how are you doing, man? Good, brother. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on. I am, uh, I'm very excited to have you because when I look at a lot of the stuff you've been posting lately, um, you know, for people who don't know you, you are a fat loss coach who is, you know, I think the best way to describe you, especially recently, is you don't say what people want to hear. You are telling them what they need to hear. And it is a very refreshing take um, on social media because we're kind of seeing a lot of the opposite right right now. And, and it's, I think it helps a lot of people feel good. Um, but I appreciate you kind of, you know, drawing that sand the line and saying, I don't really care if it, if it offends some people or if it makes people like me less, because I think this is what actually helps people. So do you want to just start by just kind of introducing yourself and talking a little bit about kind of why you have been going that route? Of course. Well, first, let me say that was certainly not always the case. Much earlier in my career, it got to the point semi-inadvertently where my identity as a coach was the guy that would always make you feel okay about your decisions no matter what. So you go, quote unquote, off track over the weekend. That's fine. At least you tried kind of or maybe had the intention of trying where yeah. you go six or eight weeks without making progress. And I would tell you, that's OK. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. And it got to the point where I realized that was doing clients more of a disservice than being more direct, because if they're hiring me for a result, can I really say it's an empathetic, compassionate approach as a coach if two to three months go by? And they're not tangibly closer to, say, the fat loss specific goal that mm -hmm. they're after. So it's kind of like the cliche dishonesty is a disservice. So both in my coaching style and in the content that I put out, and I would say over the last year and change, I just decided to stop censoring myself. So yes, you can lose fat without giving up the foods you love, but there are a lot of caveats to that. So I just found over and over that if I was leading with that stuff publicly in terms of the content that I was putting out and the things that I was saying, 
then a client doesn't necessarily have realistic expectations of what fat loss actually takes when you sign up for a program and the things that I'm going to ask you to do. For example, yes, you can drink and still lose fat. Yes, you can still eat out and lose fat. Yes, your diet should mostly fit your lifestyle, but it's likely that your current lifestyle and the frequency in which you drink or eat out is what got you into a jam in the first place. Mm. So if we operate too closely to that, we run into that kind of phenomenon that I just mentioned where weeks go by. And no, I certainly don't want to be the coach who guilts you or shames you. And that is very much not what I do. But it's ultimately doing the client a disservice to either lead with that sort of information and not include the caveats, what I call the fine print. And then when I'm actually working with somebody to not be much more direct about what fat loss actually takes, because in my opinion, that's actually the most compassionate thing that you can do to be of service to your client. Yeah. I mean, I love that because it's, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, when you look at social media and you look at a lot of the coaches out there and I have a very similar thing to what you're describing where it's, there's a very fine line. And I think we have to realize that people see this stuff and they see the posts and they take it very surface level, right? Because some people might not have never even read any of your content and they just see this one post. So when all you're saying is you should totally be able to eat ice cream all day, right? And like, I understand, I understand the sentiment. I say similar things in terms of you don't, there is no food that you can't eat to some degree and not lose fat, right? There's no food you can't eat to some degree and stay healthy. There's a difference between that and eating ice cream three times a day or eating pizza for lunch every single day. Right. So I think the, you know, I, I've, I've had this thought lately too, of this whole thing about not labeling food good or bad, right? Like it's, it's a thing we all say, it's a, it's a really trendy topic and I get it because I like, m trust me more than anyone, I get it because I come from a place that I was obsessed with clean eating and I hate that kind of stuff that like absolutes, but at the same time, do we really think that people can't tell the difference between an apple and a donut in terms of what is good and what is bad, right? There's a spectrum of foods for sure, but it seems like we're kind of going to this like almost extreme opposite end that to your point, I think it's getting more confusing for people. Definitely. And immediately what comes to mind is a quote I heard a couple of years ago uh, where there's no such thing as a bad food. Yes, we all stand by that. We never want you to feel guilty for having, I don't know, like a, a piece of cake at your kid's birthday party. Oh no, I was bad. No, mm -hmm. that's not the case. But there are such things as bad decisions. And mm -hmm. again, as coaches, we don't say that to sit here and guilt you or twist the knife or anything like that. But ultimately, if you are coming to us to reach a goal, there are decisions that are, and this will sound so straightforward, but I think people overlook it because to your point, things have skewed in the other direction. There are decisions that are in line with that goal. And there are not so great decisions that take you a bit further away from that goal. So I think that is a helpful distinction for a lot of people where no, there is no food, there is no drink that's inherently bad. It doesn't change your morality as a person. You know, I see that I'm sure you do all the time where people have a weekend that didn't go well and they immediately say, oh, I was so bad over the weekend. I'm like, no, yeah. as a human being, you're fine. You just drank a little more than perhaps you should have. You ate a little bit more. The decision itself, maybe that was a bad decision relative to your goals, which is kind of the North Star for everything. So again, I think kind of clarifying those two things. It's not the food itself, but the decision we can absolutely attack. And that's something, again, 
I, for the longest time, skewed too far away from that, where I was very hesitant because I didn't want to hurt people's feelings because, and I, I keep saying this, it's not like I'm attacking people now and ripping apart yeah. their food choices. But if somebody did make a bad decision relative to their goals, it was something that I would beat around the bush. I would use a lot of passive language of, well, maybe you might consider sometimes having a little bit of an apple if that's okay with you and that yeah. doesn't help anybody so no the donut you had was not bad but you told me you wanted to lose fat so it's likely that we should start the day with something healthier than that and then we can go from there mm -hmm. yeah i think that's it's it all comes down to the language right like it's you don't have to say okay that was a terrible you're a terrible person because <laughs> you can't do this right and i think that's yeah. i think that's where the ultimate the good and bad is that's the problem with it is it's not saying the food is good or bad like take the feelings out of food right take the emotions out of it it's just it's food it's fuel you know it, it'll build build you it'll there's bioenergetics that you're going to gain weight or lose weight all those things are true there's not emotions in food but we may we put emotions into it right and the problem with us saying recognizing that an apple is probably a better choice overall than a donut is not that it, those two foods aren't equal. The problem is that you're labeling yourself good or bad, right? And that's, that's ultimately what comes down to, you have to take that away. Like just because you ate something that's worse for your health does not make you a terrible person, right? And just because you did something that is not in line with your ultimate goal doesn't make you a failure. Like in that moment, you didn't make the best decision. That's okay. We all do that, right? With, with any of our goals, but you have to be able to sit there and recognize it and go, okay, why did I go off the wagon this, this weekend? Right? Like, why couldn't I control myself when I went out to get a couple of drinks and then all of a sudden I had two cheeseburgers, right? Like if you don't ever stop and, and look at that objectively, right? Without the emotion, without labeling yourself as a failure and all those things, it is really, really hard to actually make change in the long run. I'm so glad you brought up the idea of reflecting on what did not go well, because what I've seen just over the years, time and time again, is that people tend to go in one of two directions after going what they deem as off track. Either they sweep it on the rug, on the rug, try that again, under the rug, the very <laughs> opposite. They sweep it under the rug, kind of want to pretend it didn't happen. I don't really want to address it. I'm just going to start fresh today. I'll get back mm -hmm. on track tomorrow. So it never happened. We don't actually do anything with that information. Or the pendulum swings in the complete opposite direction and they just beat the shit out of themselves. It's this, you know, oh, why do I keep screwing up? I can never get it together. You know, I keep failing. I'm a piece of, you know, just the list goes on and they're attacking themselves. And with my clients, I always try to live right in the middle. So mm -hmm. if somebody, say during a Monday check-in, mentions a not great decision that they made over the weekend, but they're very brief about it. And then they finish with, but we're just going to get back on track this week. Great. I like the general sentiment, but we're going to stop here for a second. To your point, you might've gone into the weekend saying, well, the game plan is to do X, Y, and Z, but I ended up doing these other things. Mm -hmm. So what you and I are going to do is collaborate on what potentially made you deviate from the initial plan. But the most important thing through all this conversation, whether it's with your coach, whether it's with a client, with yourself, is that it is a neutral conversation. So yeah. when we're talking about, you know, my original game plan was to have this, this, and this, but then maybe my partner pressured me to deviate from that because they didn't want to be eating or drinking whatever it was by themselves. We're not attaching any sort of judgment or shame. It's very much, and it is what it 
you know, it is what it is. It was what it was type scenario. It's mm -hmm. neutral. You're not bad for it, but it also does you a disservice to sweep that under the rug. So I think about it almost like data collection. We have these factors that influence the decision. Now by talking about them, we can be Pro, and talking about them again in a neutral way, non-judgmental, mm -hmm. we can now be proactive, say for the upcoming weekend. And based on this quote unquote data that we collected the last time you were in the situation, we are now more empowered to make a decision that's more in line with your goals the next time around. But again, we miss that opportunity if we go in the two directions that most people do, which is either sweeping the rug, sweep, I keep saying in the rug, on the rug, under, under, the, rug. under the rug, I don't want to think about it, or just being super harsh to yourself, which isn't helpful either. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you're like, what you're describing also is just the two extremes of what we see in the whole fitness and nutrition world in general right now, right? Like you've got two sides and one is the, the very old school cliche diet culture centric. It is all willpower. You just mm -hmm. need to eat less and you just need to, to move more, you know, habits don't matter. Your genetics don't matter. None of that shit matters. Like you just need to do this. I did it. Why can't you do it? Right. And that's, and you can, you see that sentiment out there all the time. And one, I mean, that one's just completely ignorant because it's, you're, you're so out of tune of like what the normal person who's not living in the gym six days a week and doing this for a profession, what their life is like. Right. Um, and all those, all those things are true, right? Like genetics do play a factor. All their habits, your lifestyle, all those things do play a factor. It's not to say that you can't change by any means. You know, it's, it's definitely not keeping you in prison, but we should acknowledge it is harder for some people than others, right? But then on the flip side, you've got kind of the polar, polar opposite, right? That is exactly what you're saying. It's a get out of jail free card all the time. It is a don't worry about that thing. You should love yourself no matter what you know, you deserve it. You are worthy. And part, some of that is good, right? Some of that is like a missing piece. It's a missing piece of empathy that fitness didn't have before, but it's also keeping a lot of people stuck where they are because it's making them feel good right now. And the problem with that is that doesn't mean you're going to feel good in 10 years from now. And so it's, I think to your point, like that attitude is doing a disservice to a lot of people because it's allowing you to not feel uncomfortable. And the uncomfort is where growth truly happens. Beautifully said. And I actually have what I think is a, a perfect example of this in the middle approach that we're both alluding to. That's not the super extreme. You can only eat eight almonds and a rice cake per day. And it's all about discipline. And then the other side, anything and everything is okay at all times. Uh, and this is kind of a, a testy conversation. So I'm going to tread lightly. But yeah. the idea that everybody is a bikini body, that's something that you see a lot with uh, diet culture pushback, where for years, you know, at the time we we're recording this in the spring, it's very much the time where historically the health and fitness space would be like, you're going to be in a bathing suit. You're going to be in a bathing suit and yep. essentially exploit that discomfort. So you sign up for a program. Uh, and of course, that's very much something I'm not a fan of. But I do feel as though things went so far in the other direction where people who, and this is not to say that you need to be, I need to add these caveats and disclaimers here. This is not to say that you need to be a certain body fat percentage to wear a certain suit. 
that you need to inherently be leaner just because the weather is warmer or anything like, like that. But I did see quite a bit of things skewing so much in another direction where if somebody for their own personal reasons, for totally valid reasons, wanted to be a little bit leaner on the beach or in their bathing suit, it was almost to the point where they were getting shamed for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and a buddy of mine, Louis Gorino, he's the one who pointed that out. And I was shocked when he put the post out because, again, people are so far in one kind of group or the other right now where it's either old school diet culture or very much anti-dieting. And he was the one that I thought was quote unquote brave enough to address this. Every body is a bikini body. Yes, but it's also okay. And you're not a bad person. You're not inherently fat shaming anybody else. If for you personally, you decide you want to get a little bit leaner. So again, it's, it's very much an emotionally charged conversation for a lot of people, which is why I want to add the little disclaimers and caveats. But I think that's a good example of being in the middle. Everybody is a bikini body, yes, but it's also okay if you want to change the way you feel about yours, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I think that was so well said. I mean, and again, I think like everything we're talking about here, it's not meant to offend anybody, right? No, certainly not. And, yeah, and hopefully it, it is. It is helpful for some people, but you know, I, I think that whole point is so important because we were kind of moved away. Like, I think part of it is we moved away from this idea of caring about how you look right as a part of fitness and a part of nutrition. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wine to look, no, no. you know, like there's a difference between getting to crazy low body fat levels where it's harming your health, right? Like your hair is falling out. You're losing your period. Like all those things, those aren't, that's not healthy. Right. But you don't need to do that to look fit and to look good and, and, and feel confident in your body and your skin. And I, and I get the sentiment that like, like, I think, I think the problem is stop making other people feel like shit, mm -hmm. right? Just because somebody else doesn't look like a bodybuilder or they don't look like they go to the gym every day. You, if you're, if you're actually picking on them and making them feel bad, you're just an asshole. You know, you're not motivating anybody. You're not helping them, but that doesn't mean that the opposite is true either, where you, that means that you should never try to get in shape. You need to stop caring about what you look like in the mirror, all those things. And I think it's like, I think the people who do kind of raise that sentiment, they don't realize that they're kind of doing the same thing the other way, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you're kind, of, make, you're kind of making these people feel like shit for like, yeah. for going to the gym and thinking they're doing like all these things that in the past you would think like I'm doing, I'm, taking care of my health. I'm being mindful of what I eat, all those things. Now it's like you have a mental disorder because you mm -hmm. just care about those things. And like, and I get it. I get that some people truly, truly do develop eating disorders and it's a really tough place. And in that sense, like you probably do need to take your mind off that for a little bit. Right. But it's not true for everybody. So I think part of it's just, let's just be kinder to each other in general. And I appreciate that we all have different goals. Something that came up a couple of weeks ago when I was with a group of friends that you just made me think of um, is the idea for so many people that counting calories is inherently obsessive. Using the food scale, inherently over the top 100% of the time. And to give a little more context, this friend that I was with uh, was talking about her brother who essentially, you know, he, he caught the bug. He's on a health and fitness kick. He's breaking out a food scale. He's tracking things. This is something that she is not personally super familiar with, but from an outside perspective, her initial thought was and is, oh, that's inherently obsessive. That's mm -hmm. unhealthy. That's extreme. But to use a financial analogy, which my clients will tell you I love, I use financial analogies all the time. 
if somebody wanted to get out of debt, they wouldn't do it by being conscious of their spending. Because how do you measure that? That's, that? that's vague. If it's, okay, Sam, you're in debt. Six months from now, we'll check back to see if you've made any headway. And six months from now, you ask me, what have you been doing? Well, I haven't actually checked any price tags. I haven't actually budgeted anything. I haven't been in tune with the numbers at all. And I haven't looked at my credit card statements. But I feel like I've been pretty mindful of my spending. That might work if you're lucky. You know, if you're yeah. in a tremendous amount of debt, everything really, anything really moves the needle. But for most other people, it's extremely valuable and empowering to do things like that, whether it is, you know, tracking. And it, it's crazy that I'm even hesitant to say that now. Or, yes. Oh my God, somebody's going to be so mad that I suggested calorie counting. But we live in a world where an appetizer quite literally might have 30 to 40 plus percent of your calories for the entire day. So to use another financial analogy, excuse me, financial analogy, if we think about it like spending and you are on a budget, the simplest of things can be extremely expensive from a calorie perspective. And you can take a lot of the guesswork out of that, whether it is by counting, whether it is by using a food scale. And that doesn't mean you'll have to do those things forever. Very similar to when you're in debt and you might track everything down to the last penny. And then when you get to a financial position that you feel a lot more comfortable with, maybe you're not cutting coupons. Maybe you're being a little bit more flexible with, you know, your shopping specific spending or whatever the Mm. case is. But uh, to bring it back to the original point, I do find it interesting that so many people now do think things like that are inherently, you know, you know, disordered eating. And again, this is not to speak to people who have diagnosed eating disorders and need and should seek out help for that. This is this is generally speaking for people that does not apply to things like calorie counting, not inherently obsessive, things like using a food scale, not inherently extreme. Uh, and I'm actually, this will sound like a shameless plug, so bear with me. I'm actually working on a post right now, but several examples of that of things that aren't inherently synonymous. For mm. example, and this is a little bit of a sidebar, something like not having dessert or a drink when your partner is isn't inherently missing out because you're gaining other benefits. Making the decision to go on a walk before anybody in your house is awake is not inherently extreme. It's actually a very health conscious thing. And I think by the you know the case where people put so many labels like this on things almost gives us permission to not do them. Because if I built it up in my head that calorie counting or using a food scale to keep using the examples, these examples is extreme, then I feel a lot less bad. And not that I want to guilt anybody, uh, but I feel a lot better about, I should say, shying away from the numbers, shying away from the things that I likely need to do to reach my goal. So I know that was a little bit of a pivot at the end, but I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people group things together as inherently synonymous all the time to their detriment. Nuance is something that we're missing right now. And to go to continue the example of the finances, Mm -hmm. right? If you have one person who is looking at how much they can spend every single day, and they're saying, this is exactly how much I could spend to get on my, on my budget for the month. I'm not going over that number no matter what. Right. And like you said, they're clipping coupons. They're avoiding going out with their friends They're because it's, they want to hit that day, right? They want to get exactly on that number every single day. And you, and you start looking at, and they're saving like a crazy amount of money. Right. And you're looking at them and you're like, dude, you have a, you have a good job. Like you're not, you're not any financially starved by any means. Like you can definitely let loose a little bit and you talk to them and they're like, yeah, I don't know, man. Like I want to go on that trip, but I just, it's, it's just too expensive. And you're like for too expensive for what though? Like you have, you have plenty of money and it's like, you can start telling 
right? It's, it's wearing on their mental health because they're so preoccupied with the money, even though they don't need to be at all, right? To your point, like if that person stopped doing that, likely there's someone that's not going to overspend by that much anyways, right? And there's a difference between that and somebody who is overspending every single day and every single month, right? And getting to the point where they're looking and saying, well, I gotta, I gotta change this. Like this is getting kind of out of control. Um, how do I do that? Right? Well, do you think that person would do best by just trying a little bit harder and just spending a little bit differently, right? Intuitive spending, if you Mm -hmm. wanted to say that, (laughs) um, and versus does that person need to maybe look at their finances and say, okay, I probably don't need to spend here as much. I could probably get rid of this subscription, right? Um, wow, I go kind of hog wild on the weekend whenever mm-hmm. I have a couple of drinks, right? Um, and it's 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 a really similar thing that like, yes, calorie tracking can be harmful for some people and it can be extremely beneficial for other people. And both of those things are okay to be true, you know? Um, I've had people like, to your point, I've had people that have reached out to me and, and I'm very careful with this with clients because I do understand how some people are affected by it mentally. Right. And there's a difference between getting, you know, like, I think this is what the other big thing we need to talk about. Like, there's a big difference between being 30% body fat and wanting to get down to like a healthy level. Right. And being 12% body fat and wanting to get down to single digits just because you feel like you need to be leaner. Mm -hmm. I would probably tell you two very different things. Absolutely. Which brings about, of course, the the nuanced conversation like you mentioned. And I think, to be honest, no matter the population that we're working with, no matter the specific goal, uh, to speak to the point of calorie counting, feeling obsessive, whether it's, you know, a misconception that somebody else told you that or whether you're listening to this right now and you truly feel, no, I get obsessive with the numbers. They really stress me out. Some of the most powerful, I should say the most powerful thing that you can do to minimize that and ideally avoid it in the first place is simply setting proper expectations of what calorie counting, quote unquote, should look like. Mm. For example, if I have a new client who does say that to me, hey, in the past, I felt myself getting really stressed with the numbers. Some of the things that I'll go over with them is, hey, number one, you're not actually expected to hit your calorie goal right on the dot every single day. And quite honestly, even if you tried, even if there's a lot of money on the line, it's very unlikely that it's going to happen. And this is not to take things too far in the other direction, how we started this conversation where we're you know, letting ourselves off the hook all the time. But I found that some people just associate calorie counting with rice cakes, chicken breast, and perfection. Yes. So just by setting that standard, hey, you're not supposed to be perfect with this you are going to go, excuse me, you are going to go over your calories at times and that's completely okay. That's reassuring. Um, telling people that even coaches, coaches, trainers, nutrition coaches, et cetera, um, they can't track perfectly either. And even if you were in this fat loss utopia and you were eating at home, every single one of your meals and breaking out a food scale, it's still a margin of error anyway. So even if we were pursuing perfection, we wouldn't actually be able to achieve it. So I found that for a lot of people, just understanding that perfection is not actually possible for a variety of reasons that I won't bore everybody with. Mm -hmm. 
even the most health healthy fit people you know cannot be perfect and you're not supposed to be in the first place can be a gigantic weight off people's shoulders. And again, I've seen that so many times with new clients who reach whatever their first perceived obstacle or hurdle is. And I'm like, oh, just, you know, if you go a few hundred calories over today, that's fine. Wait, wait, really? I'm like, yeah, yeah, 100%. That's fine. Your weekly deficit is still in a good place. You're making good progress. And it's actually important to be proactively imperfect and flexible. That way we're not building up these crazy streaks where it feels like a, a huge deal if you deviate from your plan in any way. So again, back to the original point, I just think for a lot of people, it's expectation setting because for whatever reason, calorie counting becomes at least subconsciously synonymous with being perfect. And that's what contributes to the stress, the anxiety surrounding all the numbers. It does. Yeah. And, and I think that perfection piece is so important because paralleling that, that back to the money topic, right? That's the biggest difference. Money is very clear what goes in, what goes out. And that doesn't really change, right? Like true, a dollar is a dollar and a, and a dollar in is a dollar in, a dollar out is a dollar out and calories in, calories out is true, but there's a lot of factors that impact what that equation is. And I think that's the hardest part you know, one, we're not very good at estimating what it is unless we are like really, really measuring it. Like even, even nutritionists, even dietitians, like we're just not very good at it. Mm -hmm. And two, there's a lot of leeway in what the calories in food is, especially if you eat out, right? Like restaurants can be off by 20% legally. So you can bet that they're probably on the higher end with, all, with yeah. all the butter and all the oil and everything. And that's why it tastes really good. Yeah, right? I was going to say, there's a reason that quote yeah. unquote plain meals at restaurants taste so much better than <laughs> yes, yes. So, so I think it's, I think to that point, it's, it's not looking at calorie counting as like this very literal thing that, okay, I've been exactly on this number and it's still, it's still not working. Like, why isn't it happening? And you just kind of had to like, again, like look at it objectively, try to understand where the pitfalls are and use it as a rough, like I, I like it as an awareness tool, mm -hmm. right? Okay. What are the patterns that we're seeing? And a lot of times it's not even this ceiling of a number we're trying to get under it's, are we eating enough protein, right? Are we mm -hmm. eating enough fiber? Like there's a lot of ways you can use it to add foods to your diet and make sure that you're getting enough nutrients. So I think, I think it's to your point, we look at it as just like this very rigid diet tool and that's where all the bad feelings come in. Yeah. And uh, something else to give another tangible or kind of actionable thing for people who do feel stressed with the numbers, you know, we're mentioning it as an awareness tool and that's absolutely true. And then on top of that, um, and again, this is a little bit more based in the X's and O's, working with a calorie range instead of a specific number. Mm -hmm. And there are times where I just feel like, oh, this is obvious. Everybody does that. And then somebody, you know, they hire me and they say their previous calorie goal was 1,373 calories. And obviously mm -hmm. I'm being like a little sarcastic here, uh, but there are all these numbers that are super, super specific that of course you're going to feel bad the further away you get from those. So for most of my clients, I'll have somewhere between a hundred to 200 calorie range, depending on how precise we need to be, which is kind of a separate topic where instead of, you know, I'm going to make this up 1500 calories per day, we are at 1450 to 1550 on the day. I know it's not a huge range, but on the days you feel a little bit hungrier or the day kind of lends itself to it. Great. You operate in the higher end of that range on the mm. days when you don't really have much of an appetite. You make sure you get enough for baseline health. Again, I think that is a very overlooked conversation. Everyone is just calories down, calories down, calories down. Mm. What about these other nutrients that we can bring up the protein, mm -hmm. 
fiber, even the one everyone's scared of, carbs to support better workouts, better recovery, et cetera, within that. Um, so again, definitely operating with ranges whenever possible, I think makes a huge difference for people's stress levels surrounding the numbers. How about the idea of starvation mode? And yeah, <laughs> I know yeah. I'm opening a, a can of worms here, but Big time. I just, I feel like there's so much confusion out there and just so much, I don't even like, I would almost say like unconstructive conversation around Big time. the definition of starvation mode versus metabolic adaptation. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what's funny is that a lot of times where you were, if you look at it from just the client's point of view, right? Someone who's not in the fitness world, you're like, you guys are saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. You're just, you're just describing it a different way. Right. So do you want to just talk a little bit about that and kind of help clear up some of the confusion? Yeah, definitely as a can of worms. Um, I'll start by using the example that I know some people feel is insensitive. But if you look at people, say, in a third world country, if you look at prisoners of war who are barely eating, those, and again, I, I realize some people find that to be an insensitive example. Those people are not storing body fat as a survival mechanism. They're in a gigantic deficit and they're losing both body fat and muscle the entire time they're in that deficit. So uh, to actually, to quote Mike Dola, something I heard him say recently, science doesn't throw a party and just leave us out of it and doesn't just invite us. This this principle of calories in, calories out, while there are other factors at play, of course, that influence this, there's no scenario where for the vast majority of the world, if we really undereat, we're going to lose weight. But just Sam over here, He's not invited to this this party that we call science and him by under eating, he's going to hang on to body fat. So again, that might be an overly simplistic example, but I think when people zoom out a little bit and think about it like that, without even all the nuance and the science and the numbers, it just makes sense. Okay, that's likely not happening. And then when it comes to the metabolic adaptation component specifically, I find that for most people, unsurprisingly, this goes back to Uh, an expectation setting thing where people act like metabolic adaptation and that your metabolism slowing down over time is the absolute worst thing in the entire world. And that it means you're broken and you can't recover from it. But anytime you enter a calorie deficit, you're going to experience some level of adaptation. That does not mean that anything you're doing is inherently extreme. That doesn't mean the world is ending. That doesn't mean that you know, your metabolism is broken or can't be fixed because guess what? Barring a unique situation, when you eventually phase out of your dieting phase in this deficit, your metabolism is going to go in the other direction again. It's a normal response from your body when you're putting it in a deficit. And to add one last point here, and the reason why, despite the things I just went over, I feel so many people still really do believe in starvation mode and, well, I must not be losing weight because I'm not eating enough, is because of the lack of awareness that you and I were just talking about, where the average quote unquote 1200 calorie dieter might be their average week might look like this 800 1100 1250 1157 the binge that they don't want to talk about or acknowledge or don't realize is actually like 3000 calories that already brings their weekly average back up to maintenance and then maybe they have another one of those and to be clear i'm not talking about binge eating specifically, the diagnosed eating disorder. I say binge in the general term Mm -hmm. of just those moments where you're eating a lot because you feel extremely deprived. But then you get to the end of the week and you feel like you've barely been eating. Because when you look at the percentage of the week, yeah, it's very likely that you feel like you were eating like a bird the entire time. 
but those two or three blowouts that you're not really acknowledging have brought up your weekly average. So again, if you don't have the awareness, if you're not in touch with the numbers, which quite honestly, even people who track aren't always in touch with this, because what do most people do the second they deviate from their plan? They keep my fitness pal buried in their pocket. And that's the equivalent of going on a gigantic shopping spree and just closing your eyes when it comes yeah. time to check the price tags. That it's the cliche, calories still count, even if you're not counting them, same thing with dollars spent. So again, to, to briefly wrap up that point, I do think that it's reasonable and logical on a surface level for most people to feel like starvation mode is at play because they're not actually in touch with what their week as a whole looks like. So again, percentage wise, yeah, I believe it. You feel like you're barely eating. But if you actually look at the big picture trends, your numbers are much closer to maintenance or beyond. Yeah, there's a very big difference between being on a diet and having a diet mindset, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's that's the biggest thing. And I want and the reason why I'm passionate about this, like I want to kind of bring up two examples because you know what do you do if you have a low metabolism or crashing metabolism, whatever you want to call it? Yeah, right. You reverse diet. That's the big word out there. And that's what a lot of people are selling now, right? And I think this is important because one, like if I give two examples, one is a person who has been losing a lot of weight, right? Like maybe they're down 20, 30 pounds and they're at a point where, you know, let's say it's a woman who's down into like the teens of a body fat percent, like nearing down 15, 13 and you're getting to a point where it's like, okay, do you really, do you really need to be losing more weight? Right? Like that person's going to experience a pretty high level of metabolic adaptation, which is normal, right? Like the body is saying, Hey, I think we're kind of done here. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think people look at it as like your hormones just shift all of a sudden. It's like the, all these chemicals. And it, like, the reality is like most of it is driven by behavior. What if you, if you've ever eaten less food, you get way more tired and mm -hmm. you have a way bigger propensity to sit on the couch and you're going to probably park closer to the store, right? Then walk further the, down the parking lot. All these things that kind of add up all of a sudden foods on your mind all the time, right? Like broccoli mm -hmm. sounds like the most appetizing <laughs> thing of all time. That's when you know it's bad. Yeah. But it's, you know, it, all these things start happening that like, yes, you just, you just naturally will start eating more and moving less. And so what happens to your metabolism, right? You're burning less calories, which makes sense, right? But it, but it reverses when you bring the calories back up. So that's, that's where people will say a reverse diet, that could be a good idea because it's going to make you move more and you'll probably burn off a lot of those calories. And if you're at a low body fat percent, that's probably a great idea. You can use that, like go strain train and build a bunch of muscle and use those extra calories, right? You're going to gain some weight though it'll just likely be from muscle, which is awesome. Yeah. Now on the flip side, as a second person, this is where this whole thing becomes a problem. I had someone on Instagram reach out to me, not a client, just, it was a, I think I literally posted something on my stories from maybe Lane Norton or somebody about reverse dieting and met metabolic adaptation and starvation mode. And she was like, Hey, she's like, I, I feel this. She's like, I, was really frustrated because I wasn't losing any weight, which right there, right? That would tell you, okay, well, you're probably not metabolically adapted if you haven't been losing weight, right? Mm -hmm. That's more of like looking, okay, let's look. Great point, great point. Yeah. Right? But she met a coach online who said, oh, 
your body's definitely in starvation mode. If you've been hitting, if you've been in this calorie deficit and you're not losing any weight, which again, light bulb, you haven't (laughs) been in that calorie deficit then. Right. And put her on a reverse diet. And she was like, for months I was gaining weight and I felt terrible. And my coach is like, just keep trust the process. Keep going. She goes to the doctor and she's pre-diabetic. My God, which is, which is insane. So, so I think that's why this whole point is like super, super important because there's a very big difference of who experiences metabolic adaptation, what the level is at and when you should go into a reverse diet to actually try to help. And it's not everybody. Yeah, definitely. And you know, what's funny with the reverse diet specifically is that you see a lot of stuff uh, and you'll see it like influencers online post, Oh, I increased my calories and I lost more weight. And they're kind of selling this thing that, okay, when you reverse diet, you're actually going to lose more weight because, you know, you come out of starvation mode and your body responds and it stokes your metabolism and this, that, the other. But it's exactly what you described. It's just very, very likely. Actually, something we both touched upon. What I found is that if you increase your calories and you lose more weight, it's not because you're in starvation mode and your body's like, oh, yay, we get to spike our metabolism now. It's because of two factors. The one you mentioned where now that I have more fuel, I'm likely training harder, I'm recovering better. My neat, my non-exercise activity is going up because I don't want to just sit on the couch the entire day. And for anybody who's unaware, your non-exercise activity is the single biggest controllable factor that dictates your TDEE, so your total daily energy expenditure. That's the biggest one unless you're Michael Phelps. And then Mm -hmm. separately from that, adherence goes through the roof. So if I have this person, not that I would do this, let me have the disclaimer. If I have this person on a 1200 calorie diet, it's very likely that their average week looks like I described a few minutes ago, you know, 1100, 13, 12, 12, 2800, whether they want to believe that or not, things add up very quickly, Mm -hmm. 14, then back up to 22. So maybe the weekly average, I don't know those numbers off the top of my head. I'm going to make this up 1600, 1700, a little bit closer to maintenance. And then we formally, you know, whether it's, you know, the reverse diet or we're going to bring you to maintenance, whatever, we formally increase that calorie range, let's say, to 1,500 to 1,700. Now, because it's so much more manageable for you mentally, because you don't look at your calorie target every day and go, oh, shit, this is awful. And because logistically, it's just easier to stick to a higher calorie range, you end up in that deficit that you were pursuing more consistently. So again, it's I think whether it's intentional or not, it's very misleading when people say, oh, you know, when I went to a reverse diet and I increased my calories, I lost more weight because the average person who's struggling with weight loss is exactly like you described. They haven't actually been in a deficit. Mm-hmm. So increasing your calories is not the solution. Being more adherent to your current calorie range is. And a lot of times, ironically enough, targeting a slightly higher calorie range than you're comfortable with ultimately leads because of the increased consistency leads to you being in a deficit more consistently. Yeah. I so well said. And I just, I love this is why I love having you on because I think it's so important for people to hear what they need to hear mostly for the reason that this whole world where you're kind of tracking calories, you're kind of trying to go to a calorie deficit you're doing all these things during the week, but maybe not during the weekend, <laughs> yeah. right? That's hell. That like that is hell. And I think that's so important for people like if you're not going to do it, then don't do it. Cuz it's going to suck. You're going to you're going to feel terrible every single week 
where you come back on Monday and you go, well, it happened again. Right. So like, I think you either need to commit to, okay, you know what, for the next 16 weeks, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to calorie deficit full in and I'm going to listen to what Sam says. And, you know, I'm going to objectively look at what, where maybe I could do better. And I'm just going to do this thing. Right. But the opposite, like to your point where I think you can say, all right, well, let's just try tomorrow. Right. Let's, that's fine. Let's, let's try this again next week. You're going to get to a point where you're just never really going to make progress and then you're going to quit altogether. Right. So it's, you're, I I think this whole thing becomes very hard and dangerous and the mental part of it is tough when you're not fully into it. Like you're just sitting in kind of 50% range. Absolutely. Are you a basketball guy by any chance? Do you know Steve Nash then? Yeah, of course. Yeah, his, his Hall of Fame speech, a uh, piece of advice, that, and for anybody who's unfamiliar, arguably one of the greatest point guards ever, blah, blah, blah. And during his Hall of Fame speech at the very end, a piece of advice that he gave to his kids was, hey, guys, balance comes later. Because if we put one foot in the flexibility and balance door and one foot in the hard work, I kind of want to reach my goals door, we end up with all the suck of feeling like we're really pursuing our goals. And we, at the same time, we don't get to fully enjoy that balance and flexibility side of things. So you end up on this hamster wheel and it's incredibly frustrating. Mm-hmm. So I actually wrote an email, I guess, semi-recently now that talks about this. Um, and it was called Ending Up in Calgary. So for a little bit of context, I grew up a little bit south of Boston. So it'd be a normal flight for people in my area to go from Boston to LA. And the way that most people diet with this constant, oh, 150 calories off, not a big deal. I didn't track yesterday, whatever is the equivalent of leaving from Boston, trying to get to Los Angeles. But when you take off, you're pointed just a little bit off to the right. Now, for the first, I don't know anything uh, in terms of the specific miles per hour of a plane or miles, so I'm not going to pretend. But let's say the first 20 minutes or so, it doesn't matter that much. It might take you a little bit longer to get to LA, but there's still time to right the ship and course correct a little bit. And if you let a little bit more time go by and you don't really get on top of that and say, all right, we should probably start steering back toward Los Angeles now, you're going to creep up to the Canadian border. And if you keep letting that go by and settling for, oh, we're only technically a little off course, that may have been true when you started. But if you let that compound over time, you may end up in Calgary, Canada instead of ending up in Los Angeles. So Hmm. in, in these little micro windows these close enoughs. I, I posted about that recently too, that it's not your metabolism. It's not your hormones. It's not your age. It's not your genetics. It's the close enoughs. It's like, oh, it's fine. You know, a little under yeah. my protein, a little over my calories, et cetera. That is the equivalent of leaving from Boston. You say you're trying to get to LA, but every minute that goes by, you're letting that plane just be a little bit off. Oh, it's fine. It's only a little off, but that compounds so much over time. And then before you know it, you have all the fatigue of going that entire way mentally, physically, you know, I'm talking about a plane here, but we get the idea and you're not actually in the destination you want it to be. So you essentially have to use all that fatigue, all that time all over again to eventually get to that destination. Mm. That's such a good analogy. And it's, you know, I think this is the whole, this is the reason why there's so much frustration because so many people live in a diet lifestyle. Mm -hmm. They're always on a diet. They're always starting tomorrow. They're and because they're always starting tomorrow, tonight's always the last supper. Yeah, right? Going out with a bang. <laughs> going out with a bang because tomorrow's the diet starts yeah. again. And living in that world, like you're just, you're constantly on this hamster wheel, 
where you never feel like you're actually succeeding. You're never making any progress. You're always beating yourself up because you can't do it. And really, if you could just take that and all that energy and just say like, you know what, I'm just going to do this one final time and like put all my effort into it and just be done with it. Mm-hmm. It would, I mean, think about all the years you save, right? Just not, not running kind of halfway through it. But I do, I do want to flip to a little bit of looking at, um, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of people who come and you probably a lot of times have to decide what is even the best thing for this person in general. Um, because I'm sure one of the biggest things you get is that people's expectations and what they want, their goals does not match up with the life that they want to live. Right. And what they're willing to sacrifice. And a lot of times it's probably like, you probably get some people who just need to lose weight and want, will feel healthier. And like, that's probably the most straightforward, right. Of, mm-hmm. of building out some more healthy habits. And like, this is great because you're actually going to really improve your health. And then you probably get some people that I'm sure you look at right away and you're like, I don't think you need to lose weight dude. Right. Like that's, that's, you're, you're going into a land that you don't really want to go. Like, how do you, how do you kind of assess that? And what do you say to people like that? So when it comes to somebody that dieting is probably not a good idea for, for whether it's because they've hopped from diet to diet to diet, their relationship with food is not great. They're hyper stressed about the numbers or physiologically speaking, they're just not in the healthiest place, which I think is an overlooked prereq to dieting. Not that somebody always needs to not diet for months on end and hop right into a reverse diet all the time. I always like to make it a collaborative process as much as possible. So the analogy that I stole months ago, that's very top of mind now uh, from uh, Steve Keen, just to give credit where it's due, is a coach-client relationship is like sitting on the same side of the table, not opposite sides of the table, going over things together externally. So with a client like that who might come to me who probably shouldn't be dieting, at least not for a little while, mm-hmm. and they're so determined to do it, I'm not going to sit there and say, you know, you shouldn't do that. Here's why. You've been doing this wrong. This isn't okay. This is bad for you, whatever. I'll do this proverbial thing where, okay, we're going to collaborate together, almost asking questions that lead to the conclusion that we're after anyway, and not in a like a manipulative way. It's not like I'm trying to play some psychological trick on them, but just very objectively, hey, you told me you've been trying to achieve X, Y, and Z, and this is how you've been doing it, but here's where you're at right now. What are your thoughts on that? Are you open to the possibility of maybe going in this direction instead because to be frank, it's probably the one thing that you haven't tried, whether it is mm-hmm. hanging out in a maintenance phase for a little bit, addressing some of these relationship with food issues first. Are you at least open to that? And I found that for most people, A, reflecting on well, what I'm super determined to do right now has not <laughs> got me to my goals the last several months or in many cases, the last several years and collaborating and whatever the potential solution is uh, makes people feel a lot less attacked in a way like, oh, I went to hire this coach and he just told me I've been doing a bunch of dumb shit and I need to do it his way. Nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to hear that. Um, yeah. So I think that makes a massive difference. And for any like client who's listening to this too, you know, whether you're working with one of us or with any other coach, thinking about the relationship like that, it's a very collaborative thing. Yes. Ideally, the coach is the expert and has a level of prescription for you and strong recommendations, but it should be a very collaborative process where you're upfront about the direction you're trying to go, things you're struggling with, because then the coach is now in a better position, almost like a financial advisor who knows all the numbers and has all the hurdles that you're struggling with mm. to be able to guide you in potentially a better direction. Yeah. I, 
I love that you said understanding if they're in a healthy place mm-hmm. before putting them on a diet. Cause I think that's something that's missing a lot in the coaching world. Right. Because I think one people, you know, maybe, maybe there's just a lack of awareness, but two, I think it's also your turn. Sometimes you're turning down a client if you're doing that. Right. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to do that, but I think it's so important to like understand dieting is a thing that you like a calorie deficit is something that you need to work up to. Like you got to get ready for that, mm-hmm. right? Like that's something that you should earn to do. And I think when we just send people, like someone comes to you and they say, Hey, you know, I've been, I've been, I've tried every single diet yeah. I've been eating on a calorie deficit for the last like three years. And I, I work out six days a week and I, I run all the time. And it's hard because, you know, I've got three kids at home and also I'm the, a VP at my company. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Well, the last thing I want to do is put you on a diet right now, yeah. right? Like that person, that's like the ideal person to say, hey, you know what? Why don't we why don't we focus on some strength training? Right. Like let's get you super, super strong in the gym. You know, maybe, maybe a little, little bit loose on the food for a little bit. And like you probably need some, you know, let's focus on protein and let's get some really good carbs Big in time. you to fuel your workouts. And then, and then in a few months from now, you know, once once you see that their metabolic health is in a bit of a better place, hopefully the stress is reduced down because you've probably stopped them from doing cardio six days a week. <laughs> Ideally. <right? laughs> um, and, and you start seeing that they're in this place where like they're doing things consistently, right? Because I think that's the biggest thing with, with strain training and dieting is strain training teaches you how to do something hard consistently too. So when you do a calorie deficit, it seems way easier, right? Because you're doing something hard. And I think that's really important. So then at that point you go, cool. Now we're at a place where I already, you know, I got you up and this is where reverse dieting is good. I got you up six, 800 calories from where you were when you first got here. I feel like we're probably ready, right? Like let's go into a calorie deficit for the next three weeks. And you're going to be in such a better spot than us at that point when you came to me, just cutting your calories even more. Right. Especially because people are hyper-focused on two things, of course, cutting calories and making the scale move, cutting calories and making yeah. the scale move. And number one, even if people feel like it is on a surface level, it's not actually what you're after, just that arbitrary drop on the scale. And number two, all of the things that you just described, all of the habits, I mean, just over, this is so like boring for most people to hear when I sit here as a coach and be like, oh, your habits are really important, but objectively, if you tell me that tomorrow you want to, you know, do fasting plus keto plus this plus that because you just want to see the scale go down. Okay, let's entertain that for a second just to be fair. Your protein intake is all over the place. You've never been taught about the importance of fiber. You pretty much just drink coffee the first half of the day and then wine before you go to bed. Four hours of screen time a day. And I'm not trying to rip on anybody here, but just the average person's lifestyle who has been really yeah. struggling. Weekends are off the rails, etc. Numbers and physiology aside, do you really think that's the foundation that's going to support you maintaining the scale change that you feel like is the most important thing in the world? And then if that person is for whatever reason still determined to say, yes, that's exactly what I want. We just have to look at the data again in a neutral to bring it back full circle in a neutral, non-judgmental way and say, okay, the last 786 times that you tried this virtually every Monday for the last five years, how did that work out for you? And I think the thing that can make this whole like build up foundation laying process a lot more enjoyable for people is what you already described, which is what can we add? So essentially approach-based goals. Because if I pulled a hundred people off the street right now and said, oh, how do you think you get healthier? 
I'm going to throw out a number. 94 of them would start by, I need to avoid this. I need to do less of that. I need to cut this out. I need to stop doing that shit, whatever. Very, very few people, honestly, if any, I wouldn't be surprised if you pull the hundred and not a single person said, oh, well, the first thing I'm going to do is try to walk more on a daily basis. I'm going to try to have a little bit more water before I have my coffee. I'm going to try to get stronger. I, I would be very surprised if one person said that. But picture, if you wake up in the morning and for the first time in months, if not years, your goal is adding shit to your day to day. Like, let me see if I can hit this hydration goal. Let me see if I can hit this PR in the gym. Let me pick up a weight that I've never looked at once in my entire life and thought, yeah, I can actually lift that. You know, yeah. let me pursue more high quality sleep hours because you don't have to feel like shit every morning when you wake up. That's not this thing that's inherently synonymous with increased age and the list goes on. Do you know how much more fun and empowering that's going to be? And this isn't to say that the weight loss goal is unimportant or that we're not going to address that. Of course we are, especially if that's why you came to us. But having these approach-based goals of what can I actually add makes it significantly more enjoyable, which, shocker, lends itself to you actually maintaining your results. Because if your process is totally miserable and hyper-focused on numbers and just getting the scale to move at all costs, let's say for a second we you know, defied all odds and actually did that. You were eating a thousand calories a day and you got the scale that it go down. Great. How are you sustaining that? Like, what are we actually doing from there? If we have an focus on all the other enjoyable parts that we can add to your lifestyle. And again, I realize people roll their eyes that, you know, they tune out, they gloss over the second I say habits, lifestyle, all mm -hmm. these things. Yeah. But there's a reason that all of us coaches are just like beating over this. Like, let's go, let's go. This is so important. Yeah. I, I mean, everything that you just said is to me is a prerequisite for anybody that is looking to work with a coach. Like if you go to somebody and the only thing they do is just give you a calorie number and a macro number and say, good luck. Right. And then as, and then maybe you check in once a week and they kind of tweak some things and you're like, Oh, why aren't you hitting that? Right. This conversation though of, well, what are you going to do after? Like, what is your exit strategy, right? What's the off-ramp? That is so much more important than the methods. If I wanted you to lose weight, like I would just say, okay, just cut all your carbs and fast every single morning. Yeah, 100%. Just see how long you last, right? Because yeah. you will lose weight, right? And I'll use your photo for before and after. Mm -hmm. And then I'll kind of send you on your merry way. And I know you'll never sustain it, right? But it's going to get me, it's going to give you my next client. And I'll, yes. and, I'll, and I'll get the job done, right? Mostly because we put you in a really big calorie deficit. And I know that the carbs are going to cut all the water weight. So it's going to get you the desired outcome for a short time. And that's why we have such a problem with yo-yo dieting, right? Mm -hmm. It's because we, we gravitate towards these quick fix things versus doing something that takes longer. And even though the thing that takes longer is going to last so much longer. We don't want that. Like we want whatever's going to work right now. So I think this whole thing that you're talking about are just sustainability, being able to live in maintenance after, right? Like I, can you talk a little bit about that of like, kind of how, how do you help them? I guess like, let's bring it, let's bring it full circle with like another buzzword that you keep hearing, right? Food freedom. Oh like yeah. What, <laughs> what does that actually mean? And what does that look like then once a person does hit their goal? So let me just say, I like the general premise of food freedom, which is, you know, by my definition, you have unconditional permission to eat whatever you want, 
whenever you want. And I think a lot of people, as straightforward as that may sound to us, a lot of people need to hear that because for decades and decades and decades, they've always been told that carbs are fattening, sugar is bad for you, alcohol is this. And this isn't me encouraging that you have saying that you should have those for every single meal. But I do think a lot of people need that upfront unconditional permission to bring it back again to the earlier part of our conversation that you are not a bad person if you decide to have these things. You are not inherently off track every single time. So I like the general premise, but the idea of food freedom and kind of the claim that, yeah, I'm going to show you, you know, how to experience food freedom and like break out of the shackles of dieting. It's one of those ideally unintentionally misleading sentiments because there does have to be a level of, and here's a word that I shied away from using for the longest time. There has to be a level of restraint. And I almost felt like historically that was something that I have to censor myself with of restraint almost sounds like restriction and restriction is bad. And I don't dare say anything (laughs) like that. But just like if you're making $42,000 a year, you probably shouldn't buy a $100,000 vehicle. Like you have to have some level of financial restraint. And that doesn't mean you're doing anything extreme or restrictive or, you know, whatever. So it's kind of like, oh, financial freedom where you can theoretically spend on whatever you want, but just because you can doesn't mean you actually should. And another word you mentioned, slight pivot, but still very much related to this, the idea of sustainability. So I think where food freedom And the idea of sustainable dieting kind of get things twisted a little bit is that sustainable dieting, which for the record is something I used to talk about often, like, oh, your diet should always be sustainable. If you can't stick to it for a lifetime, you should never do it at all. Well, if the goal is fat loss specifically, that is inherently unsustainable from a physiological perspective because you can't stay in a deficit forever or you would literally die. I know that sounds extreme, but a lot of people overlook that. But then logistically speaking as well, the things that I might ask a client to do to achieve a deficit and to stay in one consistently, like, and this breaks a lot of hearts, but putting peanut butter on a food scale or Mm. tracking and planning your meals fairly meticulously That's not something I'm necessarily, in fact, in most cases, I really can't think of an exception unless you're a bodybuilder. That's not something that I'm going to ask you to do forever. So if you almost put the cart in front of the horse with I'm pursuing food freedom and I'm pursuing sustainable dieting, sustainable dieting, if we're talking diet, the verb being in a deficit, that's inherently unsustainable. You won't be able to stick with that forever. So going back to the expectation side of this conversation, I think being very clear and yes, you have unconditional permission to eat whatever you want and you are not a bad person if you have that thing. Yes, your diet, again, the vert. So people get technical here. Yes, your diet is everything that you eat on a daily basis. It's not any deeper than that. But if we're talking dieting, being in a calorie deficit, you can't really have this. Well, I can work absolutely whatever I want into my plan and I'm still going to achieve the success that I'm after. Nope, that's not going to happen. So I think a a modified version of these sentiments might be your diet should be mostly sustainable, but it's not going to exactly resemble what you're going to do for a lifetime. And now to finally answer your question more directly, how do we phase people out to that point? Well, if we have laid this foundation of what theoretically your lifestyle is going to look like forever, or at least pretty close to it, when we do enter a diet, all we're doing is, of course, reducing food intake and being in most cases a little bit more numerically precise. So we're just tightening things up a little, but we're not straying that far from what you will eventually do for a lifetime. So on the tail end of a diet, on paper, all we're really doing is loosening the reins a little bit, not a free-for-all, not going back to what you're doing before, because fundamentally your lifestyle 
can, and I used to beat around this bush too. Your lifestyle can never look the same if you don't want to go back to where you were before. So I know I went in a few different directions there, but hopefully that answers the question. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that last part sums it up and is so important because I've had a few people on the show that have lost hundreds of pounds. And I think the common theme that you see among them is if you're going to do that and you're going to maintain it, you fundamentally have to become a different person. And that's okay, you know, because there's a lot of habits that you're probably not going to regret letting go of. And there's a lot of things in your new life and the way you feel now that you're going to be proud of and you're going to, it's going to feel really good. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person before, right? That none of that, but it's okay to say, you know what? Like I do need to make some changes in my life and I think it's going to be for the better. And I'm going to really focus on, on doing that. Um, I, I think just this whole idea of, I think where it gets so hard and it, it kind of goes back to this beginning part of like, you know, bring intuitive eating into the conversation and food freedom. And I think all those are kind of tied together. Here's the hard part about it for everyone, for people who have been tracking for a long time have probably got to a place where like, they don't really need to lose a lot of fat or a lot of weight at all. And it is starting to kind of weigh on their health. I would probably suggest intuitive eating mm -hmm. to you in that sense, right? Like, Hey, maybe you should back off from using a food scale and tracking everything. But here's the thing. I don't really track my calories on in an app or on paper, but in my head, I kind of know how many calories are on my plate and I kind of know how much protein I'm getting every single meal because I did all that stuff, right? Because I've done it in the past. So I think uh, sometimes it's a little bit disingenuous when people say, oh, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't track. And it's like, well, yeah, but you did for years, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a pretty good idea where most people who need to lose a lot of fat, need to lose a lot of weight, will feel a lot better once they do, have never tracked at all. They have no idea what portion sizes are. They have no idea what a portion of protein looks like or how much, how much carbs, you know, what is, what a cup is versus a half a cup, mm -hmm. like all those things you kind of had to go through and actually see and peanut butter to your point. Right. <laughs> like that is the one every, I have like, upset some clients. With that I mean, I mean, please like, please find me one person that can accurately estimate peanut butter. I guarantee yeah, no shot. It's, it's not going to happen. So that's, that's the really hard part is like, you can get to this point where you are staying pretty lean and pretty fit year round and you're enjoying your favorite foods. You're not worried about it, but you've, you also are most likely eating mostly whole foods, mm -hmm. right? Like 80, 90%. You're probably eating really quality protein and tons of veggies at almost every single meal. And you kind of understand when you maybe have gone overboard and you kind of offset it the next day or the day after, right? Like, and you're also probably moving a lot, right? And, and, and in the gym and you're probably strain training and all those things. So and walking, so it's, it's like, yes, you can have that, but it's not just, you can just kind of lose the weight and then you just go back to your old life. And then you just magically are able to maintain that. The good news is once you do all those things, you start feeling a lot better, right? And you start noticing like, hey, I, I kind of like the way I'm doing this. Like, like, I think if you're maintaining that, you're not doing it because you're living in a prison. You're doing it because you kind of like eating that way now. 
And that's the important part. That's what food freedom is for me. It's beautifully okay. said, beautifully said, right? Um, so it's, I, I think that's just, that is the the most important piece. Again, it just goes back to this idea that it's okay that sometimes we need restraint. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we need discipline. Sometimes like, we need to I'm do. I'm gasping over here that we uttered the word <laughs> restraint. <laughs> right? Sometimes we need to do the hard thing. Sometimes mm-hmm. like, like, I think like, let's bring that back. Let's bring back the idea of doing something that's hard and it's okay. And sometimes you need to be a little bit easier yourself, mm-hmm. right? And you, and you need to be okay that you that it didn't go as planned. I, you know, again, may, maybe I'll even say you failed. That's okay. Like you yes. always have, you always, <laughs> right? You always yeah. have another chance. And I think that's why I respect the work that you're doing so much. I think it's it's so important because you might the things you're doing now, you might get a couple more negative comments than you've had in the past. I have, I have. That that's but, hurts, but but you are helping way more people. Yeah. No, no, no. I appreciate that, brother. And if it's okay, I'd actually love to add two kind of quick tips or thoughts for the idea yep. of life after dieting, kind of transitioning out of that. You brought up the idea of making decisions based on how you feel. And I find that most people who struggle with their weight, especially people who are stuck in the yo-yo cycle, are making decisions based off one of two things the vast majority of the time. It's either flavor alone and the whether it's the emotional comfort or just kind of that little dopamine hit that I get right now. Okay, I'm going to have the pizza and the wine because it's delicious and I'm not really giving a whole lot of thought to how I will feel after. Or is this low in calories is going to make the and is it going to make the scale go down? And it's this constant cycle of those two things. Is this low in calories? Is it going to make the scale go down? Or does it taste delicious? What somehow gets lost in the shuffle is Let's say you couldn't track a calorie again. Let's say macros weren't a thing and you purely had to make decisions based on how good you felt in your workouts after you made those decisions, how well you recovered, what your energy levels were like, if you were less bloated, the list goes on. You just show up better on a daily basis. You're more sharp at work. It's very likely that the numbers, and I don't want to accidentally overstate this when I say it's very likely the numbers would take care of themselves because from a fat loss perspective, you're going to have to be more precise. But from a maintenance-based perspective, again, if that North Star is purely, does this meal make me feel good? Not just now, but an hour from now, two hours from now, the next morning, et cetera. Again, from a maintenance-based perspective specifically, it's likely that you land in a mostly good place. So that's kind of tip number one is proactively pay attention to that and don't just be calorie, calorie, calorie Mm -hmm. or flavor. There is another option there and it's how you feel on a daily basis. And then the one other tip that I would add for people who do get stressed about the numbers, who do feel like, oh, well, I'm the type of person, the second I stop tracking, I just gain everything back, is to... Just like you finish a workout and ideally you have some sort of cool down, you don't go straight from listening to Metallica and squatting heavy and then you sprint to your car and then that's it. Ideally, you have some sort of transitional period. You do the same thing with a diet, ideally. We have what's called, as you mentioned, an exit strategy. So that can be as simple as for the first, I don't know, it depends on the person, first two to three weeks, we're still going to mostly do the same stuff. I still want you to plan ahead. I still want you to track, but leave your food scale in the drawer. Like just trust that if you have mostly the same portions that you've been having, because you've been checking price tags for weeks or months on end, you'll still be in a good place. And again, you do have more flexibility with maintenance specifically. Mm -hmm. Now from there, we could do something like, okay, Monday through Thursday, I just want you to jot down your choices, either pen and paper, or I often have my clients use um, the notes app on their phone. And then we can look at the day from a surface level 
very an aerial view, as I say, non-numerical. Did you have a couple of proteins? Did you have some fruits? Did you have some vegetables? And then maybe temporarily on the weekend specifically, when things are more likely to go awry, you still track. And then eventually, and I'll you know cut to the chase here, you're phasing out a little bit at a time and you're not just going, well, I got my before and after, I, I hit my weight loss goal and I'm going to delete my fitness pal. No, you develop the confidence in your ability to maintain those habits by kind of peeling back one layer at a time. And you know this transitional period will look a little bit different for everybody. Some people, maybe it's six to eight weeks. Some people are a little bit nervous. Maybe it's a couple of months. But the general idea is that you are weaning off of the strategic approach and you're not just going cold turkey on everything that brought you success in the first place. Mm. Those are such good tips. I appreciate so much just having an open, vulnerable, you know, throwing this out there conversation and and hoping that people find value in it. And I think that people will. Um, and if they don't, then blame Sam because this is all his idea. <laughs> yeah, this is all me. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Um, but I, I do I really do think this is an important conversation that that needs to happen more often. So I appreciate it. And I only I'm looking at my list right now. I had, I think I didn't even ask you like 50% of the things that I was going to. So we'll have to have you back on for sure. Um, it would be my and, pleasure. And I would have love another to. conversation. So do you want to just tell people where to find you? Yeah, I would say best bet is actually my website, uh, Sam Forger. My last name is spelled like forget, but samforger.com. That's kind of the hub where I host everything. So uh, I'm in between podcast season right now, but that's where um, you can find all my podcast episodes from season one. Uh, if you wanted to join my email list, I give away a bunch of free stuff there. I've been writing articles for years. So it's kind of where I uh, host my, what I call kind of portfolio of work. And it's just a bunch of free stuff. So I'd say the website. Awesome. Thanks, man. We Absolutely, will see brother. you on again. Absolutely. All right. Bye, everybody. All right, everybody. What an awesome conversation. I hope that you appreciated it as much as I did. Once again, if you are enjoying the show, make sure to leave a great five-star review. Hit the subscribe button to make sure that you know when new episodes are coming out. And let me know if you have any other ideas of topics you'd love to hear on the show. See you guys.